Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu. I'm your host, Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House, here with a querulous Charles Goulomb. Querulous. Querulous. You're saying I'm querulous. Mm-hmm. Unreasonably quarrelsome. Is that what you're saying? Reasonably, yes. Easily annoyed? <laughs> Ready to jump off the handle at somebody? Yeah, let me tell you something, Sonny Jim. Things were different in my day. That's right. Back then, we had great advertisements. That's right. They were beautiful illustrations. Like what? Like J.C. Landecker. Yeah, we were talking about him in the pre-show. Yeah, we were. The golden age of American illustration, which unfortunately ended before I came along, but there were still veterans of it, like Norman Rockwell, working when I was young. Hmm. It seems like you're sort of contemplative, reflective, nostalgic, has sort of degenerated into querulous. Yeah, it sure did. <laughs> but, but that's what happens. You know, when you're an old guy and you compare the wonderful days of your youth and childhood with the garbage you got to live through now. Let me tell you something. We had much better nostalgia in my day. What was your nostalgia? Nostalgia is not what it used to be. In not, no? <laughs> no. In, our, in my day, we had really great nostalgia. Now it's garbage. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, uh, what is it, Midnight in Paris? or? Um... Yeah, Midnight in Paris yeah. it really, really does catch that, that spirit. <laughs> the old days were always better than the present. Although sometimes that actually is true in certain ways. It's just that the certain ways are never the whole story. Every period has its strengths and its weaknesses. But I have to say that the golden age of American illustration was definitely, if you like work, it was great. And it also uh, speaks well for popular culture of the time. If you like what work, because it's great? What did you say? If you like beautiful artwork, oh, it was great. Yeah. If you like garbage, it wasn't so hot. But if you don't, it was great. And it was an extremely popular art. It was not intended for um, rarefied, closed-off galleries. It was very, very much popular art. Well, you know, that's a very common theme that you you see a lot. Um, to, um, what is it? Thomas Kincaid sort of. Fits that oh, mold, yeah. right? Like the he, artist he's a different of light, <laughs> right? The artist of light, and he's got various things or that go on that really um, evoke strong feelings, in my opinion. But he's yeah. obviously not regarded with any serious critical acclaim. Uh, no, and and I've known a number of serious artists who say, you know, he's sold out and all this kind of thing. But you know, again. Uh, the question is, what are you trying to do? It, that's exactly right. Like, what is the purpose of art? Like, what do they think the purpose of art is? I feel like modern art lost its way because, um, I don't know when, kind of almost with Picasso, dare I say, but um, when art is a study of art, as in like line, form, space, shape, 
texture. When it's just being a study of that, perhaps, and less of a reflection of life. You know? Of reality. Well, of reality. You, you see this in music where rhythm, where rhythm and melody was were abandoned for atonality. Uh, in in uh, poetry, where they got rid of rhyme and meter. Uh, in architecture, you know, where they got rid of decoration and got into what they were pleased to call brutalism. Frankly, I could never be happy with something that called itself brutalist. Yeah, who named that one? I don't know, but obviously not somebody working for an ad company. That's for sure. But it, it uh, no, the arts, I mean, basically lost touch with reality. And they became purely abstract, purely based upon whatever was going on in the head of the artist. And, and mind you, uh, impressionism, symbolism, things like that, uh, those were not actually totally out of touch with reality. They might have been the artist's view of a given thing, but it was a particular thing. It was a real identifiable object. Um, and you can say this even of someone like Vincent van Gogh, you know, you look at Star Starry Night, well, Starry Night is, it's obviously his mental impression, but it's of an objective reality of sorts. It's Absolutely. Not, you, you could even say this with, uh, with people like Dali and, uh, the surrealists, uh, but what we've gotten into now is a complete divorce for the external. However, enough of that. Is uh, I do have to give kind of a health update, I suppose. Oh, okay. You uh, sound good. See, I sound good for now because I don't know when my operation is going to be. <laughs> oh. But I'm seeing the specialist on Monday. And she will... Tell me when uh, when the knives will be drawn and the um, uh, the chopping commence. So I would appreciate very much, ladies and gentlemen, your prayers. We'll see what uh, misadventures Advent and Christmas hold for me in the health uh, the health sphere. So it's like a proper operation. I mean, your general anesthesia, et cetera, et cetera. Oh yeah, it... all that. Okay. All that. I served under him in the National Guard. General anesthesia. Now, what, what was that like? Oh well, it was very, very quiet. <laughs> General very, anesthesia. Very quiet. General anesthesia. <laughs> <laughs> His entire command was constantly passed out. <laughs> the <laughs> forward march was not something ever heard under general anesthesia. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Wow. Experts agree. But we also have a calendar ahead of us. Let's not forget. That's right. Tomorrow, Sunday, when the uh, when the happy uh, uh, happy pre patrons will be looking at the show on the pre-show, it will be the Feast of St. Barbara, patroness of the artillery. Right. Um, lightning's involved in her story, right? You bet. So she's also the patroness of bombs and engineering and all kinds of good stuff. But 
you'll be happy to know that the Divardi Ball, the annual ball of the Divisional Artillery of uh, the California State National Guard, is always held in what city of California? Santa Barbara. Exactly. Isn't that cute? I got to tell a, a coworker of mine. He's he's actually he was in the Marines and he did uh he was a mortar man. I got to tell him. Oh, that. Well, he should be devoted to say Barbara. <laughs> yeah. And the Marines have their own artillery, you know, their own, own artillery units. Oh, interesting. So, but then um, on Sunday, uh, rather on Monday night. Uh, I will I will be reeling with whatever news the specialist gives me, but it will be the eve of St. Nicholas. And you know what that means. What does that mean? It means good people put their shoes outside for St. Nicholas to fill with goodies. Ooh. It's, it's true. And then on, on Tuesday, you're going to have St. Nicholas's Day. On the 6th. And then Thursday, you've got the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, except in places where it gets transferred to Sunday or Wednesday or, or, or some other year or whatever. But December 8th is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And here in Austria, it's a, uh, a civil holiday. Wow. Then, uh, well, the next week we have other feasts. We've got uh, the 13th coming up with Santa Lucia, the 16th with um, uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe, the 21st with St. Thomas, the patron of India. Today, the 3rd, incidentally, is St. Francis Xavier, patron of the Indies. And then, uh, you know, after the 21st, we begin the countdown to the main event. <clears throat> Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, St. Stephen's Day, the Holy um, um, St. John's Day, Holy Innocence, and then um, St. Thomas of Becket. The 30th is kind of a dead zone, but the 31st is St. Sylvester, and then New Year's. So, we are in the midst of that wonderful, wonderful time, ladies and gentlemen of Advent. Be ready for it. All right. That sounds great. Um, are, are you on? Have you written your letter to Santa Claus yet? No. Why not? I, it's embarrassing. I, What's I embarrassing? Because I, I haven't been good. You haven't been good. <laughs> oh, you haven't been good. I don't believe that. I don't believe that for one minute. In I fact. I, Santa Claus is going to judge me. <laughs> well, that's probably true. <laughs> but just to try to comfort you, and you know I'm all about comfort. Um, you're, I'm all about comfort. So... Here we go. Tell me if this doesn't make you feel a lot better. Okay. Um, oh, I definitely can't show that because that's copyright. That's even got a watermark on it. But yeah, I know um, it does. But look at it. 
Yeah, it's uh, now, don't Santa you feel Claus better? And with the red cheeks, and he's on his sleigh, and he's very happy and going to be delivering stuff. But And there'll be gifts for you in there if you send him your letter now. We, You know, we've had this discussion before. You were like, I don't know, nine or something, and you wouldn't send it to him. I, I don't know. It's just... I don't know. <laughs> if you don't ask, you don't get. And Santa's not well, going to come across well, if you don't write him a letter. That's true, I guess. I guess I just have to overcome my insecurities. and just Exactly. Yeah. Santa would understand. He Listen, if Santa was sitting right next to you, he would give you a steaming cup of eggnog. Is eggnog steaming? Is eggnog hot? Actually, no, not as a rule. <laughs> what? <laughs> I... He'd give you a Tom and Jerry. That would be steaming. A Tom and Jerry? What? What's in a Tom and Jerry? Well, rum, whiskey, sometimes brandy, and a uh, kind of intricate batter made out of egg whites and stuff. Wow. And powdered sugar and things like that. Wow, that sounds really interesting. Where can I get a Tom and Jerry? Does everybody... Does any... Any restaurant? I mean... Not anymore, sadly. Tom and Jerry's were the thing at Christmas time when I was a kid, but they're hard to find. Let's see. Let's just see. Uh, Los Angeles area, Tom and Jerry's. Let's see if anyone's advertising them. Oh, here's an article from 1996. The last T&J question mark. Uh, You know, Tom. uh, mm -hmm. So this is perfectly, once again, on brand. Something cool something beloved that is no longer with us today fallen out of favor is it's really annoying uh the question is where could you get uh it tells you how to make your own but that's not what we want uh, well, uh, the one one of the things is all those ingredients combined. I I just can't picture a bartender doing that. And on top of that, how does a bartender make a drink hot like that? You know. Well, because they had, um, you know, they they had heating things and really well well stocked bars. Oh. There were a number of hot drinks. You know, hot rum, uh, hot buttered rum, hot toddies. Um. Ah, here we go. 2021, where to find a Tom and Jerry cocktail in Los Angeles? What, this sounds uh, like sort of find find a location map where you what, enter your zip code? Trying, that's what I'm trying to do. I don't think you can do that. It's too intricate and complicated. That's, uh, I mean, somebody, in order to get that information, somebody would have had to practically interview each alcoholic beverage location. Well, that's true, but still. Well, I can't find anything in LA. That's annoying. That's really annoying. Where? Well, I mean, we can talk about this more later. We're actually jumping to the end practically because um, we had a question from Anita asking about holiday uh, beverages. So we'll, we'll we can get to this, Charles. All right, let's let's hold off on it, but um, that's really really annoying. All right, 
Let's move along then. If there's any consolation, I feel like just straight up going to the market right now, getting all the ingredients for Tom and Jerry and making one, honestly. Um, That would be an interesting thing. It's a little, well, you'll see, it's a little intricate. But once you get the hang of it, once you get the hang of making the batter, which I never did get, once you get that hang, you can do it fairly quickly. Wait, there's a batter? You make, yeah, out of eggs and stuff. It, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you, it's uh, Tom and Jerry cocktail. We'll go to Wikipedia, source of all knowledge and truth. Um, let's see. Yeah, it's um, another method uses egg whites beaten stiff with the yolks and sugar folded back in. That's the hard part. And optionally, vanilla extract added. A few, a few spoonfuls are added to a mug. Then hot milk and rum are added, although sometimes brandy is also added to it. And it's topped with nutmeg. Pre-made Tom and Jerry batter, which I used to see in L.A. in stores, but I haven't seen it in decades. Uh, typically produced by manufacturers in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and the Dakotas. is sold in regional supermarkets during the Christmas season. Uh, so I, and and I didn't know this. Tom and Jerry was a favorite of President Warren G. Harding, who served it at an annual Christmas party for his closest friends. Well, there you go. One of the greatest presidents. Yeah, <laughs> the greatest president of the twentieth century, Warren Harding. Well, so I, I guess so. When when you say the batter, that just makes me wonder. I mean, my last question about this: it, what's the consistency like? I, I don't understand. Like I'm drinking oh. a batter? No. You know? No, because you're also adding the hot milk and the other liquids. Oh, okay, because the well, batter is there for the taste. Okay, because when I hear the word batter, I, I think like fried chicken, I think, you know. Imagine what fried what batter for that consistency of batter. Remember it's a few spoonfuls of it. Okay. Added to hot milk and raw mandor brandy. Okay. All right. The consistency is is close. It's it's a bit like hot milk, but the taste is different, and of course, it's got a kick. Got it. All right. Um, are you ready for state of the week? All right. Tell me. Oregon. 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 Woof. Well, let me see. Well, going from the eastern part of the state, which I know the least, uh, it's sort of deserty and all that. Um, so, you know, it's 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 deserty. <laughs> yeah, it's very dry. Yep. Um, but there is Crater Lake. In our, in Eastern I actually Oregon. went there. That's actually literally the first location you've said on State of the Week that I've actually gone to. Well, um, Crater Lake is, is a, it's a really, really neat place, and I recommend it highly. But it's very Tolkien-esque that, yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, a place I have not been to on the Columbia River near the Dallas, as it's called, is the Mary uh, – oh, not Mary Crest, Mary – my mind is gone. The Mary Something Museum. It was uh, it's an art museum, but it was 
heavily patronized by Queen Maria of Romania. Mary Hill, hmm. the Mary Hill Museum. But other than that, my experience of Oregon has primarily been the coast and the Portland area. And the Oregon coast is wonderful. No doubt about it. I, uh, I really like the Oregon coast. It's, it's the beach, but it's cool. Yeah, it's really um, fascinating sort of how Oregon is partitioned off where you've got you know, the very uh, wet uh, western side and then it's just sort of so dry. It's completely it's different. So dry, so dry in the east, as you say. It's, it's, it's totally different. But uh, going up the coast, you'll, re- you'll go to various t- places like Reedsport and so forth. But if you as you head in, Inland from uh, from there, the area around Portland and south, particularly south of Portland, has all sorts of interesting places. That was the area of the state that was first settled. So, in places like Gervais, as I would call it, they probably call, pronounce it Jervis, and St. Paul, St. Louis, those areas were settled by French Canadians who uh, Metis, who came with the Hudson's Bay Company. And there's a lot of there old churches and old homes and all that in that part of the world. Uh, at Mount Angel, which was settled by Germans, there's a Benedictine monastery uh, called Mount Angel Abbey that's very interesting. Near it in Woodburn, you'll see the Russian Old Believers. Uh, there's a Cistercian monastery. I think it's Trappist, in fact. In Lafayette, Oregon, I think it's called which is, is it Lafayette, Oregon? I forget, but it's all in Guadalupe. And it's all in roughly the same area. Um, the, um, the Willamette Valley has a lot of historic things in it. Oregon City has the, uh, the home of uh, Dr. John McLaughlin, who was the last factor of the uh, Hudson's Bay Company in the uh, Oregon country. And a very devout Catholic, it was a convert. Portland itself has uh, a lot, of, like any big city, has a lot of uh, things to attract you to it. Although what shape it's been in, it's in now, since the hot, hot summer of burning love, I don't really know. It does have a Japanese quarter that's uh, quite, uh, quite fascinating. The cathedral used to be nice. I don't know what it's like now. Um. And then moving moving out from there a bit, uh, from Portland, Astoria, which is the northernmost point. It's on the Pacific, but it's the northernmost point of the state. Very historic old town with uh, uh, buildings of the first settlement and all that. It was a fur, a fur trading uh, settlement. The thing to remember about Oregon is it got its start during the fur trade. And it was not really heavily settled until after it came into the United States in 1846. Prior to that time, Oregon, Idaho, Washington State, and adjoining pieces of Montana and Wyoming were part of the Oregon country, which also included southern British Columbia. And they were one area that originally was claimed by the Americans, the British, the Russians, and the Spanish. They all had conflicting claims. 
the Russians and the Spanish got out of the game, leaving it to the British and the Americans, and they finally partitioned it between them. So what's now southern BC uh, went to the British, and what is the, the southern part of uh, the country went to uh, the United States. So, I mean, it's a fascinating place. Um, I've always I've always enjoyed my trips to Portland, especially because of the weather. I like cool weather. And that's about all I have to say about Oregon. Um, yeah, I, w- I went to – my brother and I went up to Oregon um, up the five all the way. We just drove up, drove up the five. And um, one of the things that, that really struck me kind of as a, a cultural difference between California and Oregon is – at the time, at least, um, they had gas attendants everywhere. Yes. And yes, that freaked right. me out. Like, Can I say something that will frighten you? Okay. When I was a boy, every gas station had gas station attendants like that. I mean, that's fine. That's fine. But, like, why Oregon? Like, why did they – like, why were they keeping – State law. Oh, really? Well, yeah, it was a way of preventing their unemployment. See, what happened in most of the country is that with the gas crisis of 1972, full service collapsed. Oh. But in Oregon, the state moved uh, because the, the labor lobby was strong there, I guess, to insist on maintaining full serve. I wonder if there are any other states oh, like that. Oh, Wow. Full serve. It used to be that for a while there was full serve and self serve. It was you, know, you could do either one. But let's see, full serve, full serve gas station. Do they uh, still do it to this day? In Oregon, I don't know. Let's see. Someone is in Oregon who's listening. To that could you could you please tell me because that'd be really interesting because. Presumably, you tip gas attendants. I can't even remember if we tipped. Um, do you tip a All gas right. attendant, Charles? In New Jersey and Oregon, still don't let you pump your own gas. Wow. Okay, this is fascinating. This is from CNN, who know everything. Um, most Americans facing record gas prices cringe when they fill up their tanks, but not people in New Jersey and Oregon. They're not allowed to touch the gas nozzle. Seriously. In New Jersey, it's been illegal for drivers to pump their own gas since 1949. A ban on self-service gas has been in place in Oregon since 1951, although the state relaxed restrictions for rural towns a few years ago. Violators can be fined up to $500 for breaking these states' laws. So there you go. So it, it, what, what's the etiquette? I mean, are you, are you tipping? I mean, if you're tipping 15% or whatever. No, no. You don't uh, tip. Okay. I mean, you can if you want to. That's a lot, uh, though. I mean, that's. Oh, but this is interesting. Uh, in July 28th, 2022, Oregonians in 26 counties, including the three metro area counties, plus Marion and Deschutes, can pump their own gas through Sunday night the state fire marshal said July 27th. The authorization was in response to Governor Kate Brown's executive order on Tuesday, 
which declared a state of emergency due to the heat wave. Huh. Interesting. I'm surprised you didn't know that about New Jersey. You've been hanging around the Paramus Mall here and there with the... Well, I know, but I just never... I never paid attention, I guess. Uh, hmm. The... Uh, but it was the the filling the uh, full service gas stations really uh, really shut down. Um, oh, uh, State of Oregon banned self service in 1951, but legalized it in 2018 in counties with 40,000 residents or fewer. Uh, in the town of Huntington, New York, self service gas stations are illegal. That's on Long Island and Suffolk County. In Brazil, self-service is illegal due to a federal law enacted in 2000, and it's illegal in South Africa. Concerns include job losses and the danger of drivers leaving their cars. Well, you know, I wonder if um, full-service gasoline stations have incrementally higher gasoline as a result of having to support the labor for it. You know, it could be. I that's, don't know. That's um, yeah. Okay. Wow. That's that was a that was a nice little uh, little tangent we uh, we did with a some Coulomb factoids there. Well, you know, it's funny. I remember they used to have uniforms and they wore hats, it looked like policemen's hats. Hmm. Uh, it was a. Uh, let me see. I'm trying to find you a picture of one such. Because I, uh, they were, you know, when we would drive, we were great ones for driving in my family. My dad, you know, loved loved going on, uh, on rides with us. There you go. That's exactly what they looked like when I was a kid. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, nice outfit. Yeah. What what, what do you call that kind of jacket? Um, I don't know, but they uh, they wore it. Okay. And they had that sort of quasi police officer's cap. Yeah. All right. It was a it was a different time. Not that we're getting querulous and nostalgic or or you know sentimental. So do. Do you want a return of the gas attendants? Is that part of what we're missing in America? In I, most think so. America. I think yeah. I think probably the loss of the of the gas station attendant was a major force in our moral decay. You know, I, I actually genuinely think it might be a good thing for California because p- people in California they're so um, self involved. Yes. So nasty. <laughs> so self-involved and in, in kind of like isolated, you know. Even in uh, supermarkets now, right? You can do your your self checkout thing. You can you you ring oh, up yeah. all your own items, so you don't actually have to interact with anyone. But yeah. I I feel like a you know, I feel like people are missing out. I feel like that's but it's not it's not just they're missing out though. That's true. But see, there are a lot of jobs that teenagers used to do. You know, high school and, right. and college people, gas station attendants were uh, prime, box boys in supermarkets 
Remember yeah. the box boys? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the there were a lot of these sorts of. Uh, I mean, now the only one that's really left. Oh, and and of course, um, parking lot attendants. Hmm. But these are all being removed uh, slowly by automation. Yeah. In the 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 problem, of course, is that you've still got people needing those jobs. Now, the biggest remaining source of jobs of that sort for high school and college age people is, as they like to say, uh, with their noses in the air, flipping burgers. Uh, of course. But McDonald's and, and uh, Burger King and Jack in the Box and all these others, that's about the last remaining place where kids of that age can find steady work. That's fascinating to think about it that way. And what could you do then? Yeah, because um, I, I wasn't even able to get a job as a box boy, as you put it, in some of these other places. So, uh, well, what about like um, playing devil's advocate? Um, what about cashier at a market or like at Walmart, Walmart or Target? Oh, sure. All those. But bear in mind what you just said. They're slowly being replaced. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously. Yeah. But they're slowly being replaced. Those are also jobs that senior citizens go after. Right. I um, I could, I myself could get a job as a greeter at Walmart. I have absolutely no doubt. Hello, welcome to Walmart. We got a lot, about a, a lot of garbage here for you to buy. But don't worry, it's all made by slave labor. Have a nice day. Merry Christmas. What? You don't think I would I would go over well saying things like that? Yeah, but, you know, th this touches on a theme that I'm really hot on. I don't know how much we've talked about it, but um, it's just a social isolation of mm -hmm. people, especially young people. And it's such – it's something we need to fix, and we need to give young people more opportunities – for socialization in real life. And I speak of this as someone who suffered from social isolation for over a decade, at least. Uh, don't I know it. Right. So, you know, you see that now, and my heart bleeds for the young people because, again, I'm speaking from personal experience. You know, inwardly, you're dying for socialization but at the same time, you don't know how to to do it. You don't know what opportunities are there. And on top of everything else, you don't have any self-confidence to even do it. You know, take advantage of the opportunities. So well, it's just these see, huge hurdles. Well, you see, I mean, we had things like that. Uh, we had things called schools, but they're screwed up. We had the Boy and Girl Scouts which yeah. were once upon a time perfect for that sort of thing, but they've been hijacked. We had summer camps, but they've been hijacked. And so it goes. I, um, you know, I was, I was just thinking how uh, three of the most American institutions of my childhood have in various ways gone down the tubes. Uh, the Boy Scouts, the Knights of Columbus, and, of course, the American Legion. And it just 
The problem is that none of this stuff produces anything. Walkery and a, a, a complete self-isolation of one's own mind, which is what everything seemingly promotes. It just doesn't do you any good. Um, I mean, I, I had a, a young individual um, ask me uh, an interesting question, which is, how do you let, uh, how do you get someone to know the real you? Yeah. And I thought that was an interesting question. I thought about it. And what I responded was by doing stuff with them. Hmm. In other words, people can only get to know you by knowing you. Yeah. And that can only happen if you do things together. I know this sounds like a Hallmark card. Yeah. But the fact is, if you're lonely, if you want to uh, meet other people, well, then focus on one of your interests and pursue it and meet people. I mean, focus on it outside the Internet. Find out. I mean, there are some interests that you, you can't supply off the Internet, so that won't help. But let's say, for instance, um, you've got a yen for gourmet food. Well, look up and see if there's a slow food movement chapter in your part of the world. Gardening. Well, see if there's a gardening club. Coin collecting. Local history. I mean, anything that you have an interest in that has a local manifestation in the real world, go see it. Go try it. Now, you may not like the people. You may not. They might be all old. Uh, or they might just not be people you like, so then pursue some other interest. But eventually, if you do this, you'll find a group of people that share your interests outside the Internet. And you can interact in the real world, and eventually, over time, you get to know them. You don't get to know them all at once. Uh, you know, it's it's. it's I, I mean, this is this is kind of funny coming from me because, of course, my reach is thanks to the internet. We're having this conversation, ladies and gentlemen, because of the internet, and I'm grateful for it. But the fact remains that most of my life was spent without the internet. And people of my age had to make friends in the real world. And, and again, I don't mean to say that there's no value to making friends to the internet. I have myself. But when you don't have that possibility, you have to get to know them in a very real way, in a very special way. You can't eventually come to know them that way on the internet. It takes a lot longer. It usually requires meeting them in the flesh sooner or later. So try it. Try your local theater company or, or music group or, or literary uh, society or anything that'll get you out of yourself and dealing with people in an area that you're actually interested in. Hmm. Yeah, you know, and I just... It's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in being a part of 
what is it? The third space. And you know, that book, the great good place. And no. because I know that's part of the solution for young people. And that's going to things like that. Stru- social structures like that uh, make it easier to just sort of organically or naturally meet other people. Well, well, they do. I mean, if if you see a, a bar on the way home, you find it interesting. You don't have a drinking problem. <laughs> um, you know, start dropping in once or twice or three times a week. Well, I'm, I'm quite serious because yeah. you, you get to know people that way. Um, you know, again, depending on you, because one size fits all. Or sorry, one size does not fit all at all. But I mean, uh, you know, uh, there's the fabulous first cabin there in Arcadia. And this is a place that I go into when I'm home, maybe two or three times a month. But they always know me when I go in, you know, and they have some vague idea of the course of my life. And there's Pat O'Brien and the Priests of Love. Right, the band. That's right, the house band. Every Friday night, the house band. Why are they called the Priests of Love? Well, Pat O'Brien is of Irish descent, as you can guess. And the idea is that uh, the production of music is, in a certain sense, a holy and priest-like thing. That's a little bit... (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, you find poets and various writers and actors and so forth saying the same things about their profession. Yeah, so. I guess it's just the context, the specific context of the band. Uh, well, they play standards. I mean, uh, rock standards, but standards. Yeah. Okay. I um, I remember my uh, my brother got really annoyed with me because I had them play the Ballad of the Green Berets. Andre being a Green Beret, but he didn't think it was a suitable suitable setting for that song, which to him is almost sacred. But I said, nah. And they knew it because, of course, there isn't a song written during the 60s they can't play. Ah. So if you find yourself in Arcadia, ladies and gentlemen, Arcadia, California, on a Friday or Saturday night, make tracks as long as you're not in a truck filled with stuff, in which case I'd advise you to park in Monrovia. Uh, and you know, get a get a cab or something into downtown Arcadia. Don't don't be driving through in a big truck filled with loot. You don't yeah. want to make a sudden stop on Huntington Drive. But otherwise, just pull in, pull into uh, uh, Huntington Drive there to the first cabin, and you will get your fill of '60s favorites. Some of them sung in a sort of ironic manner, like if you're going to San Francisco. Yeah. I get the feeling that when I ask Pat to play that, uh, he thinks I'm teasing him. You know, sorry, I I just had a thought. You know, maybe that's why um, the population of Arcadia is booming is because, you know, it's hard to move out of Arcadia with your moving truck. It's hard yeah, to well, get... that's true because things do tend to fall. Off. <laughs> things tend to fall. Off. Yeah, but you come Boy, in, you're a... fine. But you just can't go out. <laughs> when you when you try to move out, things have a tendency to fall out of the van. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you know, there was this there was this light at First Street, and, at first, and we just. I turned around, and half the U-Haul was empty. <laughs> I don't know where it went. And the funny thing is, my grandmother's sterling silver vanished. I don't know what happened. <laughs> well, I, I really can't recommend moving out of Arcadia. That's right. Moving in, nothing to worry about, kids. Moving out, well, <laughs> why do you think I haven't moved my house? Even though I'm living in Austria. Yeah. Yeah. You think I you think I'd be stupid enough to get a moving van to take my stuff out of Arcadia? My coolome didn't raise no more on. The most I might do is take some of the most valuable things out of my car and put them under the seat. Right. You know, I mean, the small things like the coin collection and stuff like that. I yeah. might, you know, shove them under the carpet <laughs> in the car and then <laughs> <laughs> and then drive out, <laughs> but nothing, nothing too big. You know? <laughs> no paintings or anything. <laughs> I don't think they'd make it out. <laughs> no, that's not true. They don't have sticky fingers in Arcadia. <laughs> At least no more than they do in Sacramento. Anyhow. Um... <laughs> But yeah, I, I I think well let's let's move on. Yeah, What's let's, let's move on. Question? Yeah, we won't go into the the gift shop and and stuff like that. But anyhow, all right. Questions. Or Tyrone's uh, <laughs> Christmas order. Did you see what Tyrone ordered? What did he order? M16s for the whole so the uh, whole security staff. I think that's really going a little. Does everybody need to have an M16 uh, on security? Well. <laughs> it's interesting. We live in interesting times. I guess so. Gosh, I well, you know, what's next? Grenade launchers? Well, that would be hard to imagine. I don't think so. But you, you never know. Can't be too safe. <laughs> you, you can't be. Too, you can never be too safe. That's um, right. <laughs> if a grenade launcher is what you need. <laughs> You know, who are we to say you're wrong? <laughs> Hope for the best, plan for the worst. That's always been our motto. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a pretty bad deal when you see the security guards toting grenade launchers. It's, it just, I don't know, kind of gives the wrong impression. <laughs> yeah. Unauthorized person running toward the north gate. <laughs> Fire a grenade launcher at him. That boy ain't gonna make the north gate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there ain't gonna be enough left of that boy to ship home. All right. All right. Um <laughs> you, you you teared up. I teared up. That All got me. The, that really I guess got you me. Felt you felt sad for the poor guy. Yeah. It's a sad thing when we have to resort to that. But um He was trying to steal something. He ain't gonna steal no more. <laughs> All right. You you know it's a good show when we're approaching the fifty minute mark and we haven't gone to the questions yet. That's a All sign right, of a good show. I take that as a subtile hint. On to the questions. Well, we, 
No, it's it's also true, I in my opinion. But um uh yeah, all right, questions. Um so we'll start the show with none other than Andrew from New Jersey. Yay, the man who doesn't pump his own gas, as we found out. Yeah, apparently. Um not since nineteen forty nine. Yeah, so I better say all his identifiers, otherwise he's going to yell at me. Andrew from New Jersey, by way of Long Island, Connecticut respecter, Lower Hudson Valley enjoyer, Monophysite destroyer. Oh. You know when you've gotten to the place uh, where your identifiers combine to be like 10 times longer than your name? Or your Uh, question. Or your question, but... Fortunately, Andrew's in the right place. He's our kind of crazy, am I right? No, he's the father of my godson. Wow. One of them, anyway. All right, um, so he says, hello, gentlemen, and greetings from the home of the first collegiate football game, Rutgers over Princeton in 1869. Wow. Oh, are we still on? We haven't gotten over that, have we, Andrew? We're We're still bitter over that game. The great state of New Jersey. I have been... uh, So, okay, he has a bunch of questions. Um, Number one, I've been getting more interested in the 1970s recently. What can I say? Nothing nothing accompanies a nice mock turtleneck quite like a good leisure suit. That's for sure. I have been noticing a rather disturbing trend. I've noticed that many of the most notorious serial killers in history were active during this decade. Names like John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, and the son of Sam read like a who's who of multiple killings. Serial killers are not a phenomenon reserved to the 70s by any means, but I'm wondering from someone who lived through that era, did it seem like there was an uptick in this type of depraved violence? And what was the general feel of the country hearing about these type of events? Well, it did, actually. I mean, we also had the Zodiac Killer. I think he started in the 60s, but he went in the 70s. Uh, there was definitely a feeling of, of, especially in the first part of the decade, of quiet hysteria. Uh, I mean, this was when you, you got the urban legend about the, uh, the razor blades and apples and Halloween, things like that. Oh, uh, so there was a, uh, there was certainly a rise in fear of these sorts of creatures. Now it's impossible to say whether or not there were there actually were more of them, but certainly we heard a lot about them, and uh, people began to get very fearful for their children uh, in ways that perhaps had not been that common before. Uh, you know, the the general collapse in mores uh, the previous decade was enshrined and institutionalized during the 70s, and that didn't help. Uh, so, yes, I, I'd say that uh, there was there was definitely a greater con- a greater um, consciousness of this sort of crime and a fear that, well, there was a great deal of fear about it, especially 
uh, for kids. Um, yeah, uh, that's what I would say. So, you know, I um, used to watch a lot of these type of crime shows. And um, I have a question over whether or not there were more in the 70s or if there's sort of more awareness. I mean, because there are other really like huge, tremendous serial killers that people don't really know of. I, I was um, on one documentary, they're documenting um, the uh, Green River, uh, uh, Green River Killer, um, oh. and he Gary Ridgway. And he killed, looking at his Wikipedia now, he got con- convicted of uh, 49 counts of first-degree murder, and but in total, 71 to 90 confessed and suspected. And he got convicted. What does it look like? Looks like the late nineties. He was active. It looks like these these murders were active between eighties and nineties. So I guess my question is: Are serial killers still going on? They're still happening, but it's just like it's not there in the media for us to sort of um, sensationalize, if you will. Well, I think that's true. I don't think the media really talk about that sort of thing anymore the way they did. Hmm. Um, and I mean, so much, even if they did, so many of us have so little trust in the media now that we almost don't care what they say about anything. You know, it, it's almost. You know, it, I mean, when was the last time you picked up the LA Times? Well, gosh, that was. Probably the 90s, right? Because eventually at some point we got off the LA Times when it was just unbearable because it's so – the liberal stuff so, is so annoying, right? We got yeah. like Pasadena Star News or I don't know, something else. The Tribune. But the, the LA Times used to be one of the major crime reporting newspaper outlets in the nation. Mm. And uh, a little earlier, when I was a kid, we still had the Herald Examiner as well. And oh, sorry. Both those papers uh, were very big on crime news. And in those days, in general, newspapermen loved to dub murderers, they, to give them names, you know. So like, I remember there was one, uh, the Candlelight Killer in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. I remember him. And I don't, I don't know if he was ever caught, actually. Uh I haven't thought of him in years. I see. So that that's interesting now that you sort of bring in this this context of physical newspapers and sort of the headlines driving sales, right? Like you know, like a a serial killer that you can name, that sells a lot of papers, but perhaps through the context of the internet that might not really we have different clickbait stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it it uh well, this this is interesting. Um, yeah, I, uh, they did find him. Uh, Richard Willard Liberty was the uh, the candlelight killer, an American serial killer who murdered two men in Southern California from March to June, nineteen seventy, in ritualistic style, and left taunting messages behind for authorities to find. Uh, hmm. Gosh, I remember this. 
If you've had brandish a grease pencil and run on the bedroom door, the candlelight killer strikes again. Uh, but one of his victims escaped before he was able to kill him. And then he was uh, killed in um, he was killed in prison awaiting trial. He was murdered by a fellow uh, inmate. Hmm. I mean, I gosh. Think, I, I think the media does have something to do with it, too, in terms of the decision-making. You, you think of, now my mind is gravitating to the movie Natural Born Killers uh, by Oliver Stone, which is sort of a critique, uh, a, a critique of the media sort of hyping up these killers, you know? Well, they, that was, that's a question that has always been since the days of Jack the Ripper, uh, has always been the question of, uh, yeah, Zodiac Killer was mostly late 60s. Um, but uh, at any rate, there's always been the question since the time of Jack the Ripper of whether or not uh, media attention adds to it. And that's not a question I have an opinion on since I don't know. But it, it yeah, the, the, it was, there was a lot of it in the air. It was pretty foul. One has a revulsion, an innate revulsion regarding serial killers. Did you feel scared at the time? No. Hmm. Okay. No, I had a guardian angel. And I figured that if um, if it was my time to go, I'd go. Oh. A combination of, of uh, confidence and providence on the one hand and uh, fatalism on the other. <laughs> yeah. I think actually there's one last force that has just emerged in the past few years that <clears throat> ensures we um, – that the media doesn't hype up or create any fear over killers. And that's, there's something more important and more useful to get everyone to fear about. And that's COVID. We need to make sure everyone is fearful and uh, compliant and does what we say regarding these things. And before COVID, there was the Trumpster. That, yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, everything was, I mean, everything was about Trump, yeah. you know, during his four years in office. It was all Trump, 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 Trump. That's why I began to suffer from Trump outrage exhaustion syndrome or fatigue syndrome. Alan. Fatigue, yeah. Trump outrage fatigue syndrome. Tufts. Yeah. I just got the minute I would hear his name mentioned, I would just turn whatever it was off because I knew they were going to be going on and on about how terrible it was. You know, okay, you don't like the guy. I get it. It's three years into his presidency. You know, I had to live with Obama. I understand how you feel. I stopped swearing about Obama a month after he became uh, president. Although I began again when he would do stupid things like the uh, executive order that uh, public schools had to integrate their locker rooms for uh, both genders, or at least for self-identified, or lose federal funding. Yeah, That was the memorable instant in which uh, Winston Churchill emerged as a uh, trans. That's right. That's the first time you broke me on the show. No. All right. That's right. I have never promised anything except fluid gender. <laughs> that's, 
<laughs> he never said that. In no, life. he didn't. No, he didn't. You know who made me uh, re- relive those uh, special moments? Connor McHugh. Oh, the uh, the on plot lines. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he interviewed me Friday yesterday, and wanted to hear uh, wanted to hear transgender winning again. There you go. Shout out to to Connor. Yeah. Although I, I've got to tell you, uh, the one thing that would make Winnie drop the pretense of being a teenage girl is if she were told she couldn't smoke cigars. Wow, that's true. That's right. Suddenly, Winnie would become Winston again and cease haunting 12-year-old and 13-year-old girls' locker rooms. All right. Uh, second, <laughs> You're coming perilously close to breaking, aren't you? No, I'm not. All right. Uh, second question uh, from Andrew. Yes. No. Yes. No, you're not. For, seriously, not I'm not close. All right. All right. All right. Uh, I if J.C. Leyendecker could have done a picture of Winston Churchill as a 12-year-old girl, cigar and all. Stop fishing. All right. I'd also be interested in hearing what living through the 70s was like. <laughs> well, you should probably ask that 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 utter moron, uh, Oswald Dupree, who has never gotten over it. Today, it can often feel as if society and all its institutions are crumbling down around us. Moral degeneracy combined with decreased standards of living and high inflation can be quite unbearable at times. But during the 1970s, people were dealing with especially in the aftermath of the tumultuous 1960s. In the church, people lived in the wreckage of Vatican II, and of course, Roe v. Wade was enshrined during this time. And on the other hand, today, Roe v. Wade is overturned. But we have a host of new problems that would never or that would not have even seemed possible in the 70s. What was on the mind of the average traditional Catholic during this time compared to today? Was it better, worse, or the same? All three, in the sense that, in some ways, well, again, to understand the 70s, you've got to understand that in both church, state, and society, the garbage of the 60s was slowly being institutionalized, you see. In other words, it became, over the course of the 70s, more and more acceptable for people to shack up. It uh, Premarital sex became went from being more and more accepted to being expected. I mean, today, when you say that uh, most people, when they hear that someone has a boyfriend or a girlfriend, they presume there's sex involved. It was going that way then, but it wasn't there yet for everybody. And you've also got to bear in mind that there were a lot of institutions in those days that still seemed pretty solid. The Boy Scouts, the um, although they took kind of a drubbing in 73 with the, uh, the new program, as it was called, the Legion, the Knights of Columbus, these things, the Elks, soldiered on as they always had done. A bit is slowly being eroded, but by and large, seeming you know firm. 
uh, church life was worse. I mean, uh, you didn't, you simply, in most of the country, you simply didn't have the traditional mass. It just wasn't there. And where it was, where you could find it, was in the hands of independent chapels solely, or the then infant SSPX. But none of those were widespread phenomena. Uh, there was, uh, on Long Island, of course, there was the famous Father Gomar de Paz uh, Chapel, the Ave Maria Chapel. In Monroe, Connecticut, the um, something called the Orthodox Roman Catholic Movement had a chapel. And Oyster Bay, Long Island, was where the SSPX started out. Um, well, there was very little in Southern California uh, in the 70s. Uh, Father, um, oh gosh, Father Perez's uh, predecessor, Father, um, oh, this is terrible. I know his name is Liz own ex-Jesuit. Anyway, he was offering mass in various hotels in the San Fernando Valley, uh, German name. But, I mean, it was a very bad time in the life of the church, speaking nationally. So there, I would say it was worse. Um, it was, as I say, it was better in that there was a lot more left from the before time. It was worse in the church uh, because they were in the first flush of excitement. Of, of breaking everything. Um, and some sort of adult supervision had not yet been restored with JP2. So the little, little uh, morons who are now the old morons running the show, they were running the show then. But they were young and they had a lot of viv and verm and vinegar, especially verm. Um, and in other ways, it was very similar. The same feeling of, you know, what's next? What's the next shoe to drop on our heads? Uh, but of course, the Soviet Union was still very much with us in the specter of, of communist uh, takeover. So that, oddly enough, had kind of a positive effect in certain ways. Um, so it was a mixed bag. I see. Okay. Um. So much of the music was horrible. The same for the fashions. Uh, a friend of mine who's now dead, alas, called the 70s the decade that never should have happened. He was referring to music and fashion primarily, but, you know, there's a sort of truth to it. All right. Um Final thing from Andrew, he says, I've had a theory of my own that the forces that conspired to bring us Vatican II and the hippie and psychedelic movements that brought us the Manson family are somehow connected, as both seemed to lead to the type of decay which made the serial killers of the 1970s possible. I can't quite put my finger on what the connection would be, though. What are your thoughts, Charles? Can any lines be drawn between the collapse of the church via Vatican II and a type of social collapse brought on by the hippie movement in, conjunct in conjunction with psychedelic drug culture? 
Well, I think there's sort of parallel things that, to a certain degree, especially in various local areas, fed off each other. Um, my dad was very much of the opinion that as far as America went, uh, World War II played a big role in the destabilization uh, of American society that bore fruit, quote-unquote, in the 60s. And I, I've also looked, as you may or may not know, into the idea that World War I and World War II helped destabilize the church itself and led major figures to question uh, the church's teachings and traditions and so forth. Not necessarily so much specific dogmas as the Catholic ethos in general. Um, but certainly, I mean, World War I plunged Europe into a period of decadence. World War II did the same, I think, in America, although it was to a degree delayed by the necessity of dealing with the communists. But after we got used to it, then we let it all hang out. And, of course, you had the Supreme Court eating away at uh, the, the morals of the country, but they could never have gotten away with it if the country were not sort of pretenderized. I mean, don't forget, even a man like President Reagan thought for a while when he was governor of California that abortion was okay. Now, he changed his mind later, but his wife never did. So, at Reagan, you know, people today, people look at him like you were the rock of Gibraltar. Well, I mean, I, I like the fellow very much, and I'm happy I lived under him. I'm happy I met him. But he was not the rock of Gibraltar. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I can see what Andrew's kind of saying. I mean, that the sort of feeling, the same forces that conspired to bring us Vatican II, um, brought us the psychedelic movements. I, I feel like perhaps they're just linked in the way where it's like, hey, dude, let's try something new. Yeah. But yeah. there's no, there's absolutely no basis for well, there's not a there, there's not yeah. a causal connection, I think. But as I say, there were parallel movements, yeah, and they influenced influenced each other to the extent that you had the feeling of change. Change is good, ever in everything. Uh, you know, and of course, the other thing too, it's important to bear in mind is that very often, um, very often the the your personal experiences, if they occur against the backdrop of major historical experiences, tend to conflate. So, in other words, uh, if I were, if I had been dubbed by my first great love, uh, the day Jimmy Carter beat Gerald Ford, there would be a connection between those two events in my mind. Do you know what I mean? No, of course. I mean, I, I have that. Absolutely. Like, right. My, my dad died as COVID was, you know, beginning. Yeah. So it's like I have this before and after type situation and the two kind of are linked. Right. Although, although obviously in that particular case, there's no connection between the two. Right. 
but to the end of your days, they will color how you feel about that time. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, coming out to California, which I, I hated, coincided with both the changes in the church, the most obvious, going from English to Latin and the canon, and the hippie movement. Now, obviously, had we stayed in New York, we would have seen the hippies too. But that's not how my mind functioned. We leave New York where we didn't see any. We come to Hollywood, and there they are. You see what I mean? I, I, no, it makes perfect sense. Like, you went to this new spot where it feels like they were always here. Yeah. Yeah. And it, uh, and it, it, it gave me a lifelong horror of revolt and revolution. I don't like the apple cart being upset. And of course, very often uh, that will get thrown in my face by people. And they'll say, well, you just don't want to see the apple cart upset. Yeah, well, you know what? Let's upset your apple cart and see how you like it. You know? Well, I mean, the whole basis of government and society and heaven, I mean, what we want, I mean, one of the things we want above all things is peace. Yeah. And upsetting the apple cart is the opposite of peace. <laughs> it sure is. Now, that doesn't mean that some apple cart shouldn't be uh, yeah. upset. But you got to think real long and hard before you do it. You know, and will the expected benefits equal the downside? And that, of course, is one of the bases, uh, both in the church's just war teaching and in her just revolt teaching. And it's an important one. Yeah. Um, I one of my favorite um, lines in the movie Metropolitan is when the so-called socialist outsider, when they when the other kids are talking about the, the decline of their class, uh, he says it wouldn't be such a bad thing if if some of these people lost their class privileges, and the girl he's getting warm with slowly says, uh, you know, it has nothing to do with uh, losing your class privileges, whatever that means. And these people are everyone I know. It's yeah. the prospect of uh, living your whole life believing that you're a failure. And, of course, he, uh, he shuts up. Yeah. Brilliant movie, Metropolitan, and a great film to watch during the Christmas season. Hmm. It's part of my personal Christmas celebration. Interesting. Uh, all right. Um, Andrew says one final thing. He says, P.S. The 70s gave us Vega, Vegas era Elvis, and that's more than enough for me. Yeah, I can't argue with that. That's pretty sad. So uh, there's something about Elvis in that jumpsuit singing about the baby born in the ghetto that I don't know. Include me out. All right. Anita, super fan Anita uh, says, greetings, gentlemen. My prayers continue for Charles's good health. You want questions? I got questions. All right. Let's go from the macro to the micro. Ooh. Question number one. Okay. 
This is this is what's up. This is one of the best questions ever asked. Does the Holy Roman Empire still exist on some level, having never been formally abolished? If the empire were to be restored today, who would be the logical man to lead it? What a good question. Well, first, let me read you a couple of quotes, which I I think are worth reading. Uh, first is from the acknowledged master of the uh, the the acknowledged master of stuff about the Holy Roman Empire in English. Uh, James Viscount Bryce, who, in, uh, in looking over just this very issue, he said, and I quote, uh, quote, Great Britain had refused in 1806 to recognize the dissolution of the empire. And it may indeed be maintained that in point of law, the empire was never extinguished at all, but lived on as a sort of disembodied spirit. For it is clear that technically speaking, the abdication of a sovereign destroys only his own rights and does not dissolve the state over which he presides. Perhaps the elector of Saxony might legally, as imperial vicar during an interregnum, have summoned the electoral college to meet and choose a new emperor. And then Klaus Epstein, uh, in the genesis of German conservatism, declares, quote, while there is no question that Francis was personally entitled to abdicate a crown he was no longer willing to wear, he certainly had no constitutional power to dissolve the fabric of imperial obligation per se. The empire, like all sovereign states, was intended to be perpetual, and the emperor had sworn to maintain it to the best of his ability. He broke his coronation oath when he declared it dissolved, and he failed to consult the Stenda assembled at Regensburg about his highly irregular procedure. One can argue, therefore, that the imperial death warrant was technically ultra vires, and therefore null and void, and that the empire, quote-unquote, legally, continued to exist after 1806. Now, Father Aidan Nichols, my um, uh, favorite living theologian, has made his comment here, uh, in Christendom Awake. Quote, Catholicism as orthodoxy has historically recommend, regarded the monarchical institution in this light. Raised up by providence to safeguard the natural law in its transmission through history as that norm for human coexistence, which, founded as it is on the creator and renewed by him as the redeemer, cannot be made subject to the positive law or administrative fiat or the dictates of cultural fashion. Let us dare to exercise a Christian political imagination on an as yet unspecifiable future. The articulation of the foundational natural and Judeo-Christian norms of a really united Europe, for instance, would most appropriately be made by such a crown whose legal and customary relations with the national peoples would be modeled on the best aspects of historic uh, practice in the Western Holy Roman Empire and the Byzantine Commonwealth, to use the term popularized by Professor Dmitry Obolensky. Such a crown, 
as the integrating factor of an international European Christendom would leave intact the functioning of parliamentary government in the republican or monarchical polities of its constituent nations and analogues in city and village in other representative and participatory forms. All right, so what does all this mean in terms of our question? Well, let's go back first to the beginning. And by that, what do I mean by the beginning? I mean Monday Thursday, the first Holy Thursday, when Christ did a number of things. He founded the Mass and the priesthood, but he did something else. He united his Davidic kingship, to which he was the rightful heir, humanly speaking, to the communio of the church. Now, for the first several hundred years of the church's existence, this didn't mean a lot. But starting in 303, when Armenia converted from the king on down, it made a difference. This connection between the church and the Christian state as separate and distinct realities, but nevertheless part of the same thing, the Respublica Christiana, the, the body of Christendom. This um, came to a head in 380 with the Edict of Thessalonica when Emperor Theodosius the Great made baptism not only entrance into the Catholic Church, but also Roman citizenship. From that time, uh, the idea of the Christian Empire, the Holy Empire, uh, although it encompassed the barbarian kingdoms in the West, the Franks, the Visigoths, the Anglo-Saxons, and so on, all of whom considered themselves part of the empire, even after it ended in 476 AD. In, uh, they all recognized the emperor at Constantinople as being the chief sovereign of Christendom, although they ran their own affairs. Um, when, after the Muslims invaded uh, the Near East and took the Holy Land, Egypt, and all that, and the Lombards made uh, Byzantine control of Italy very spotty. The Pope looked for another protector, and he turned to the Franks, and he crowned Charlemagne as the renewed emperor in the West. And there emerged what they were pleased to call the two emperors problem. You have the Holy Roman Emperor and the Byzantine Emperor, both claiming to be the successor to the Roman Emperor. But you see, Roman history already provided for that because for many decades there had been two emperors, one in the West, one in the East, before Theodosius the Great, uh, who was the last emperor to rule both sides and whose sons were emperors in the East and West. Uh, but despite having two emperors, it was held to be one empire, coterminous with Christendom. Now, mind you, uh, as France became more powerful, uh, many French kings made the declaration that the king of France within France had the same powers as the emperor outside. And of course, Charlemagne was numbered the first French king as he was the first Holy Roman emperor. 
But here's the fun part. When Charles V in 1517 stood for emperor in the election of that year, his two opponents, his rivals, were King Francis I of France and Henry VIII of England, thus tacitly accepting the fact that although sovereign within their own borders, they were still part of the empire, still part of the Respublica Christiana. The Reformation comes along. Henry VIII declares his independence not just from the church, but also from the empire. He, so, he said that? Yeah. And of course, the and of course, with the Protestant revolt in Northern uh, Europe and especially Northern Germany and Switzerland, the Netherlands, the imperial power became severely attenuated. But nevertheless, the legality and the tradition remain the same. Now, in 1453, the uh, Byzantium fell to the Turks, and the uh, Byzantine Empire was at last extinguished. But through a marriage negotiated by the then Pope, for all of my Orthodox friends, it was a Catholic Pope who arranged for this, the niece of the last Byzantine Emperor married the Grand Duke of Moscow, who from that time on claimed to be the successor of Byzantium and the Tsar, hence the phrase uh, Moscow as the Third Rome. They said that Rome fell to the barbarians and Constantinople to the Turks. Moscow is the Third Rome, and there shall not be another. That whole Third Rome thing comes again from the imperial tradition. Uh, the Holy Roman Empire limped along until in 1806, as we see, was quote-unquote dissolved. I say quote-unquote because I think the case has been well made that it was not legally so. And that indeed, although there was no Holy Roman Emperor, the empire in the West continued the way it had between 476 and 800. In theory, in legality, and as part of the Respublica Christiana. So, the other thing, of course, that the Emperor Franz did two years before his application was to create the Empire of Austria so he could maintain an imperial title. And, of course, the double eagle and all the rest of it, which had been the symbol of the Christian Roman Empire, continued to be used by the Habsburgs as it was by the Russian Tsars. First there were kids, and then the Romanovs. In 1917, the last Tsar was overthrown, murdered a year later. In 1918, the last emperor of Austria was driven from his country. He dies in 1922 in Madeira, the Blessed Emperor Carl. It's interesting to me, the Blessed Emperor Carl and Nicholas II are both venerated as saints by their respective churches. And that brings us to the present. Well, I suspect that the Holy Roman Empire is, as it were, the Roman Empire, the Christian Roman Empire, is waiting in the wings to be revived, resuscitated, even along the lines that Father Nicholas suggests. Someday or other, sooner or later, the double eagle shall fly again. What that will look like, I do not know. What realms it shall encompass, who's to say? And of course, 
it's important to remember that as far as the Holy Roman Empire goes, every Holy Roman Emperor had several different tiers of power. There were his hereditary domains, depending on what dynasty he was from, Habsburg, Hohenstaufen, or whatever it might be, where he just ruled. Then there were places like the Imperial Free Cities and the lands of the Imperial Knights that were feudally subject to him. Then there were the great territorial princes, the electors, and people like that, whose connection was looser. And then there were the Christian sovereigns outside the boundaries of what was called the Holy Roman Empire, who were nevertheless considered to be and considered themselves to be part of the empire, which was, as I say, codominious with Christendom. If, as and when, Catholics and perhaps Catholics and Orthodox in a reunited church begin to think along these lines, I have no doubt, as I say, that the empire shall spring to life once more and the double eagle shall flap its wings. But the last question, who would be the most likely successor? Well, there's no way to tell, of course, yeah, that if in terms of some remote future. If anything approaching that happened in the more immediate, well, I would say, of course, Carl von Habsburg, the head of the House of Habsburg. But we're a long, long way from that being a possibility. Right now, the church has first to get a pope who um, really reflects Catholic tradition. Because only such a pope uh, would have any interest in this kind of thing at all. It was Leo III who crowned Charlemagne. And of course, you have the interesting and intricate um, relationship between the popes and the European Catholic sovereigns. In that, on the one hand, uh, his permission was necessary for their coronations. And on the other hand, they had the right of veto over individuals they did not think were appropriate to be Pope. So you have this balance between the two. Hmm. Speaking of Popes who um, would like that sort of thing, you think we'll ever in our lifetimes, have a pope who puts on the papal tiara? A good question. I hope for the sake of the papacy, the Holy See, the Catholic Church, and the world, that that happens sooner rather than later. It, I mean, it all depends, and it all depends on, on, on how badly the church and the world gets smacked around by the results of their own sinfulness and stupidity. You know, when you get your face shoved against the wall, you sometimes figure out reality a little more closely than you did before. So you sound like an accelerationist now. No, I'm not. I don't want to see it happen. But I'm saying that it will happen sooner or later. I hope not in my time. But I mean, is that the only way it's going to happen if things, quote unquote, accelerate? I think it's I think you're looking at it the wrong way. I think they will accelerate. And they and these things will happen. 
but it's not that I like it. It's not that I want it because I don't. I think I see what you're saying. So we're a train going on the tracks. So it, it yeah. is happening. This is reality. It's not a matter of if. It just this is where we are. Yeah. I mean, believe me, if there's a way to slow down the train, I'm all for it. But when you've got morons in charge and everything, it's difficult. Stupidity is not a good thing, despite what you may have heard. Um, I mean, when the Holy Father was vaporing about the Chinese government appointing a bishop, you know, look what you signed with them, Holy Father. Did you have a right of veto in that document? I highly doubt it. You know. Hmm. What's to, what's to be said? I mean, look, if I uh, if I give you carte blanche over my bank account, and I give you the right to uh, sign checks on my account solely, and then you empty my account, well, you're a thief. But what am I? I'm not going to say it, Charles. All right. I am two words, stupid, spelled S-T-O-O is the first word, and P-Y-D is the second. Wow, impressive. All right. Uh, I'm not saying the Holy Father is stupid. What, is that what you were thinking? Yeah. I would never say that about the Holy Father. Okay, well, that's okay. All right, very good. Moving on. Um, Anita says, it has been announced that the Stone of Scone will be used next year at the coronation of Charles III. Will our Charles be able to wrangle an invitation to the coronation? What is the history of the Stone of Scone, and how did it come to be associated with the coronation of monarchs? Well, first, uh, I'll answer the second question first. Uh, no, there's no way I'm going to wrangle an invitation to the coronation. Uh, I, I will be watching it on television like everyone else, presuming I'm able to sit up at that point. The second uh, question, though, uh, the Stone of Scone, or the Stone of Scone, uh, is, began life as a typical Celtic coronation stone. Because the many, many Celtic kings would be crowned standing or sitting on stones, on particular stones reserved for the purpose. Now, tradition has it that the Stone of Scone was originally the Stone of Destiny at the Hill of Tara, on which the high kings were crowned, high kings of Ireland. Now, there's another stone that Tara today that people claim is the actual Stone of Destiny, and that the Stone of Schoon is a Scottish uh, imposture. I don't know if that's true. What I do know is that a lot of Irish, uh, in the wake of the fall of Rome, poured over the uh, water into Scotland, what we call Scotland now, because Scott originally meant Irish. And... By the year 600, you had four peoples in what is now Scotland. 
In the highlands were the Picts, who were a strange Celtic people. In the islands and adjoining peninsulas, the, the Hebrides, uh, you had the Scots who had come from Ireland and allegedly brought with them the Stone of Destiny. In the far southeast, what we called Lothian, you had the Angles who had come over from, uh, from Germany. And in the far southwest, you had the Britons who had been pushed there by the Angles. And they were like Welsh or Cornish, people like that. So in the 800s, I think 873, these four groups were united by a man named Kenneth McAlpin. And he became the first king of a united Scotland. And so we're told, was crowned at Schoon on the stone of Schoon. And that was the case until the time of Edward I in the 1200s, when Scotland was occupied by the English in the wake of the then royal line failing, uh, Edward being asked to judge between uh, the two families who claimed the throne, the Balliols and the Bruces. He found for the Balliols, but he took the stone of Schoon down to, uh, down to uh, London and was put in the coronation chair. From that time on, every English king sat on it when he was crowned. Um, now, that was annoying to the Scots between the 1200s and uh, 1603 because, of course, it gave the kings of England a claim to the Scottish throne, and they didn't like that idea. But in 1603, the House of Tudor failed with its last member, Elizabeth I, and she was succeeded by her cousin, James VI of Scotland, a Stuart, and James I of England he became. So he was crowned King of England, sitting on the Stone of Scone. Now he, Charles I and Charles II, had separate coronations in Scotland, as because the kings of Scots were, were crowned separately. But from the time of uh, James II onward, every uh, king of, uh, or queen of the two kingdoms was, uh, got only the one coronation in London, sitting on the Stone of Scone in the coronation chair. Uh, and that was true down through Elizabeth II. Under Elizabeth II, uh, John Major sent the Stone of Scone back to Scotland, where it has sat ever since. But it will be brought south again for the coronation of, king, of uh, the king, and he will sit on the stone of Schoon in the coronation chair the way his mother and various other forerunners did. Um, the Scots have their own crown jewels, the so-called honors of Scotland. Uh, but as I say, no king of the two kingdoms has been crowned with it, crowned with them since... Um, I think Charles I. Interestingly enough, when they had the Union of Parliaments in 1707, part of the agree agreement was that the honors of Scotland would never be sent to England. And to ensure this, they were hidden. <laughs> and when, uh, when George IV was going to come north to Scotland in the early 1800s, it was Sir Walter Scott who, because the, the location of the honors had been forgotten. It was Sir Walter Scott who found them 
in time for them to be displayed for uh, the king uh, when he came north. And from that time on, uh, whenever a, uh, a new king is crowned in London, his first trip to Edinburgh, he's sort of presented with the honors. He doesn't wear them, but he's sort of there. And that was done the last for Elizabeth uh, in 1953. So I'm sure that at some point after the coronation, uh, the king will go up to Edinburgh and sort of be received in St. Giles Cathedral and gawk at the honors of Scotland. Does it excite you that King Charles is using the stone? I mean, is this optional or is this standard? It's standard. Oh, is it? Okay. Okay. Um... All right. Uh, as long as we're talking about stones, what is the origin of the legend of kissing the Blarney Stone? Has Charles ever kissed the Blarney Stone? Never. What's that all about? Well, there's a castle called Blarney Castle. And I, I, I used to know, but I've forgotten the story behind it. But there's a stone where if you're held in a certain way, you can sort of lean over the window and kiss it. And suppose it will give you complete eloquence. It's an, an enchanted stone. And everyone will believe whatever drivel you tell them. <laughs> and people regularly just, they line up to kiss the stone? Yeah. But it's kind of hard to reach. Yeah, so I mean, it can be done, but you've got to, you know, you lean over and you've got to be held to do it. But I have never kissed the Blarney Stone. Maybe someday. If I had a bucket list, I'm sure it would be on it. Yeah, well, why do they make it so unusual? I'm looking at it now. That's... Huh. Okay. Fascinating. Uh, final question. Um, Anita says, finally, the time has come to talk about adult beverages for the holidays. Will, ah. will Charles please discuss some classic adult beverages for the holidays and how to make them? Well, we started with the Tom and Jerry. Right. And, of course, with the Tom and Jerry, uh, you make this batter, as mentioned. Uh, and people vary whether they use rum, brandy, whiskey, or all three, or two of the three. Uh, but basically, you put the booze... You take a, tub, a couple of teaspoons of the batter, you put in the, uh, the booze, and then pour in hot milk and stir it all up. And it is really delicious. Uh, Damon Runyon had a piece on the Tom and Jerry at Christmas. Uh, Damon Runyon wrote his stories of New York, uh, New York's semi-underworld. Uh, in dialect, New York dialect. And this is what he had to, uh, what he had to say about the Tom and Jerry. Dancing, dancing Dan's Christmas. He says, um, now here we go. 
Now, one time it comes on Christmas, and in fact, it is the evening before Christmas, and I am in good time Charlie Bernstein's little speakeasy in West 47th Street, wishing Charlie a Merry Christmas and having a few hot Tom and Jerry's with him. This hot Tom and Jerry is an old-time drink that is once used by one and all in this country to celebrate Christmas with, and in fact, it is once so popular that many people think Christmas is invented only to furnish an excuse for hot Tom and Jerry's. Although, of course, this is by no means true. But anybody will tell you that there's nothing that brings out the true holiday spirit like hot Tom and Jerry. <clears throat> and I hear that since Tom and Jerry goes out of style in the United States, the holiday spirit is never quite the same. The reason hot Tom and Jerry goes out of style is because it is necessary to use rum and one thing and another in making Tom and Jerry. And naturally, when rum becomes illegal in this country, Tom and Jerry is also against the law because rum is something that's very hard to get around town these days. <laughs> and so it goes. Dancing Dance Christmas, I recommend it highly for the Christmas season. Christmas was not invented for Tom and Jerry's. Wow, that gives quite a... A picture that it was that popular. It was that popular. So it's wow. So salt, confectioners, sugar, butter, vanilla extract, nutmeg, cloves, allspice. Wow, a lot of stuff going in there. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm making it my goal uh, this Christmas. Uh, it's too unusual. Too and, much of a challenge not to. Right. You know what I mean? It's like that's part of the fun is is trying to do this crazy thing. And it seems like it would taste at least interesting. You know? It's very good. I, I've, I've had several in my lifetime, and I've enjoyed each and every one of them. The last place that I can remember having a Tom and Jerry was the um, – no, there are two places. Uh, the Lexington Bar in uh, Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. No, sorry, St. Paul, Minnesota. And the other, uh, the Palace Hotel in uh, San Francisco. Does the der does the Derby offer it? No. What a plebeian institution. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but I mean, the Derby, like so many other institutions of that kind, uh, there, there's a lot of stuff they just don't do anymore. The only table side thing they do is Chateaubriand. Oh, they, they don't, don't even do they don't do Caesar salad table side anymore. No, I thought you had one with. I remember when I went with you one time, and you had the thing with the potatoes. Oh, that's different. Oh, that's, oh, oh, oh okay. That's strictly the one waitress. Oh, oh okay. And and she started out at the late lamented Monty's Pasadena. We have a long history. <laughs> Barbara, no, it's it's true. We do uh, because Monty's was a great restaurant. Again, heavy food house in Pasadena, and I think it's it went went down in two thousand five or something. Mm. But it was great. Again, you know what I like: dark wood, red leather banquets, the neon sign, steak, seafood, cocktails, etc. Well, it was during the uh, decade or two that I used to go to Marty's that I first met Barbara. And then when Marty's closed, she shifted to the Derby. 
that, that is straight up serendipitous. <laughs> oh, it sure was. And, and so she brought her potato ability with her. Wow. wow. Of all the places. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, see, the number of those places, like the Golden Corral and Glendora closed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you ever come back, if you ever make it back to the great state of California, we need to go. You, you need to take me to one of these places. Um, one. Or all. We need to go on a pub crawl. Definitely. A restaurant crawl. That would be amazing. You know, I, I I hate to say this in front of our studio audience, but a great deal of my time when days gone by was spent in establishments of this of this description. You know, ladies and gentlemen, how can you possibly beat steaks, cocktails, baked potatoes, especially baked potatoes that are a bit played with like Barbara does? Uh, how do you beat that? No, you can't. How do you beat, uh, I mean, my all-time favorite meal as pioneered at the late lamented uh, La Parisienne was to start turtle soup. Well, no, uh, yeah, start with turtle soup. Move on to uh, Caesar salad, table side, of course. Steak Diane, table side. And lastly, but not leastly, crepe Suzette's, table side. I mean, that's my idea of the perfect meal. And everything washed down with copious amounts of uh, cocktails before and after. Well, and a aperitif and a digestif, and of course, wines with dinner. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, on this green earth, those are the most wonderful, wonderful things you can do uh, that are not directly religious. Mm. And I say directly because... Good cuisine, and it doesn't have to be just heavy food, whether it be Chinese, French, or Dutch. Good cuisine, like any of the great arts, is a reflection of God's own uh, own divine creation. And of the intelligence he gave us to improve upon it, as it were, to be co-creators with him. Uh, anyway, I digress. As far as uh, other drinks go... Well, the Christmas uh, season, uh, hot drinks are the things that one goes for. The Tom and Jerry we've talked about. Uh, hot buttered rum is exactly what it sounds like. Rum, hot water, honey, butter, stirred up. With whiskey, you could make a hot toddy out of whiskey and hot water. And sometimes people add things to it. Uh, there is mulled wine, or Glühwein, as we call it in German, which generally has wine, other spices. Uh, they have also, <clears throat> in, uh, and you can try this at home, but be careful, in Germany and Austria, they have what's called the Feuerzangenbola, or the Krumbambuli, which is basically a, a wine and rum punch with uh, citrus fruits and other sorts of things. And you have a a sort of cone of sugar, of hard sugar, soaked in rum, which is set aflame. And it falls into the punch. That sounds insane. It's great. I would have, if I had been up to it, I would have enjoyed it Friday night and the preceding Friday night. I was invited out twice and I just wasn't up to it, sadly. Ugh. 
Wow. But I love the crumbamboli. Or the foyer sunken bowl, if you prefer. Now, there's apple cider, eggnog, of course. We can't leave out eggnog. Uh, and those are, I guess, pretty much the uh, hard cider, I should point out. But those are pretty much the, um, the Christmas uh, period drinks. Um, champagne is always good. I like mine dry. Um, and a week later, it's absolutely required for New Year's Eve. So I'd say I'd say those those would do it for mm. adult beverages. Um, Ovaltine and tequila, no. You you just made that up on the spot, right? You you didn't grab from from something. Yeah, I just made that up okay, on the spot. Okay, that's good. That's good. Um, I. I don't want anyone. Did, to, I don't want that to did, be a thing anywhere. That sounds horrible. That sounds did, nightmarish. Did I, that was hugely disturbing. disturbing. Tequila and Ovaltine. Hugely. Would I don't a, even. A, I, I, I want to get that out of my mind like immediately. I don't even want to think that. That's one of those things you, where you, you just regret, you know, seeing. Except this is hearing. So you don't want to think about tequila and Ovaltine and the twist. Stop saying those two words together, Charles. Tequila and Ovaltine? Yeah. Stirred up? Presented Charles, in an you say old that one more time. Glass. I will make it. You say that one more time. I will make it the title of the show. So don't do that. Oh, you you, you would dare. I, I would completely dare. that. It, it's funny the things I need to use to try to threaten you. <laughs> There's none All of right. So let me get this straight. If I mention those two beverages... Placed in an old-fashioned glass with a twist, and perhaps a sprinkling of nutmeg. You would call the show. I, you know, I, tequila I would... and Ovaltine. I'm going to call it Charles Coulomb's tequila and Ovaltine. <laughs> We've never had your name on the show before, but I'm putting it there. So this is your proprietary blend. You always come up with these new little, little. Things uh, okay, so from now on, everyone's going to say, "Well, tequila and Ovaltine, good old fashioned take Charles it, Coulomb drink." Take Te- it, take it a step further. Cool, uh, Charles Coulomb's Christmas tequila and Ovaltine. <laughs> 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 Normally, I would never drink the swill, but it's Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I want an old-fashioned Christmas like we used to have back in 2022. You know, with tequila and Ovaltine. Forget Tom and Jerry. I, I, I want to go back to the really old tradition. You know, like with the liturgy. The, see, tequila and Ovaltine mimics the Tom and Jerry. It's like the Tom and Jerry, only it's not. Like, like the new mass mimics the earlier liturgies. So the what? new mass is like tequila and Ovaltine. That's basically what you're saying. Yeah, I guess I guess you can say that. <laughs> okay. It's like tequila and Ovaltine. But mind you, if you say it in Latin, you've added some nutmeg and other spices to kind of disguise the flavor. Wow. Would you accept tequila and Ovaltine now? In an old-fashioned glass with a twist? You know, honestly, And a cinnamon stick. 
We're coming from people who are talking about chow mein sandwiches and Cincinnati chili and um, aspic. I mean, this is right there. Down down a good old helping dinner uh, like uh, of aspic <laughs> with some tequila and Ovaltine. What a nightmare. What an absolute. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the ex- like the actual like sensational experience of that of having aspic? Like aspic was bad enough. Now throw tequila and Ovaltine on top of that. Well, I'm thinking. I'm thinking some of our really diehard fans may one day to celebrate not Christmas itself, but someday during the twelve days. You see, they'll have uh, they'll have an off the menu Christmas menu with Cincinnati chili. Chow mein sandwiches, aspic. Um, let's see, what's the other? Um, Cincinnati uh, chili aspic, chow mein sandwich. Um, well, what is it? Um, the lady oh, had that a, sandwich. It was like peanut butter and banana and mayo or something. Like that's there was the like one. Mayo. That's the, it's crazy. That's the one, and all of it washed down with uh, tequila and Ovaltine, with oh. a twist and cinnamon stick. And nutmeg. I think this 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 could be an off the menu Christmas party. Mm-mm, good. We'll be the only Christy ones asked. there. <laughs> What's that? We'll be the only ones there with that. That'll menu. be enough. That'll be enough. <sighs> Plus, because it's Christmas, it could be tomato aspect. Okay, just you know, for the red color. <laughs> Ah, the table, the table surrounded with pine and and, and candles and <laughs> a real a real old time Arcadia twenty twenty two Christmas, you know the the old traditional style they used to do it in Arcadia. Ah, isn't this wonderful? Text them out to me, boyhood, doesn't it just? But chief, you uh, you actually never ate anything remotely like this. Ah, well, who's to say I didn't? You weren't there anyway, were you? Well, no. You know, he would probably sell tickets to the members of the force to this dinner. <laughs> well. All right, guys. It's been an absolute monster of an episode. Two, hour, two hours long. I know you guys love those long ones. God bless you if you're still here with us. <laughs> Even though and if you are. Yeah. If you are, you know, you better whet your appetite post-Christmas dinner. You know, this would, this would be a, a good for the Feast of the Holy Innocents. If you ever make it back to California and we're doing a show here, you're in the Tumblr Tower, I'm going to give you a big old heaping glass of tequila and Ovaltine. <laughs> well, you know, I'm gonna, I've got to admit something to you. I can't drink tequila. You know yeah. why? Well, when I drink too much, I can't drink it. Like the room starts spinning. But um. no, no, I I can't drink it because the the worst um, the worst hangover I ever had was as a result of tequila. Oh yeah, no, two days there. long, two, two days, days long. Wow, it was horrible. I, I get that too. Not, I don't know if about two days, but um, yeah, I'll stick with the oval team though. I don't mind that. Yeah, there's something about tequila. I don't know. Um, Maybe fortify it with Western oil or something. What is that? Motor oil? <laughs> what? No, 
Wesson oil. You know Wesson oil. Wesson oil? I thought that's like Pennzoil. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pennzoil might improve the flavor of a tequila and Ovaltine. <laughs> Even more than the cinnamon stick and the twist. But... <laughs> Oh man, oh man, oh man, Shevitz. I uh ah, it's good to be alive. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I've got to ask our our inimitable inimitable czar of the bazaar. Oh no, that's me. Our inimitable Don of the uh, of the printing press. I've got to ask him a couple of important questions. Go ahead. If it's off the menu. It's Monday. You ruined it, Charles. <laughs> All right, fine. If it's Monday. It's off the menu. And the soul you save? May be your own. Void were prohibited. Act now while supplies last. Batteries not included. Some assembly required. <laughs> we'll see you next weekend. See ya.